0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Thank you, Parker. It's good to be with you this morning. It's a privilege to, to serve this church. A privilege that very few pastors have had to have a church like this. And I'm grateful. Praise God for you. And I do love you, but more importantly, God is the God of love. And he's loved us, hasn't he? He has shown such great love to us. So, I know you're all anticipating going out and watching a bunch of adults kind of make fools of themselves, right? (laughs) I am too. But first, we are going to a passage in God's word where some grown adults, well, one at least, made kind of a fool of himself. But boy, I wish I could make a fool of myself in the way this man did. Uh, Sometimes you make a fool of yourself on your way to to great things. And that's the passage we're in this morning. So, um, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word, Matthew 17, 1 through 13. Now, I want to remind you. Just before this passage begins that we're in this morning, Jesus has called his disciples to, to lose their lives for his sake, to carry their cross, to, to remember that, that this life is not the end of things but the life to come is the end of things. When the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds, he said, And then there's this verse 28 at the very end, truly I say to you there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now in the passage we're going to look at this morning, the disciples have heard an Old Testament prophecy that Elijah, it's in Malachi, that that Elijah will return before Jesus Christ. And they are thinking as they are there with Jesus on the mountaintop, what we're just going to read in a moment, they're thinking that this appearance of Elijah is that fulfillment. But Jesus says, oh no, it's already been fulfilled. John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. He was the prophet that was prophesied under the name of Elijah. And in the same way, you may be very likely to to be looking and thinking, well, there had to be some coming of Christ that was great that would happen before all the disciples died. You may not recognize that this passage, that the, the kingdom will they will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is actually fulfilled in these verses by these three disciples, all right? This is the fulfillment of that promise. It's a great promise, and today we see that God is faithful to his promises and he fulfills them. So, 17.1, six days later, after Jesus had said these things that I've just spoke about, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, John, his brother, James's that is, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. so he took Peter, James, and John. and there on that top of that high mountain, he was transfigured before them. he was he was changed, he was altered. He we call it the transfiguration, but it means his figure became different. it went through a change, a remarkable transformation. Before them, his face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. And so what mankind has tried to do with the tokamak reactor and the attempt to come to nuclear fusion to create the light of the sun on earth was done right there in the face of Jesus Christ. We've spent billions upon billions of dollars trying to to mimic the sun Jesus face shone like the sun his garments became as white as light not as white as snow as white as light his face the sun behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him now we know from Mark that they were talking with him about his departure Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, three tents. I'll erect three tents here. That's what a tabernacle is, one for you. But in Israel, tabernacles are more than tents. They are tents, but they also were where they worshipped. They worshiped in a tabernacle for many, many, many years. And so a tabernacle is a tent, but they're to erect tabernacles during the Feast of Booths. And they're to put tents up and live in them and reminding themselves of God being with them as they fled from Egypt and they had to live in tents. So it's a charged word, although it is just a tent. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, okay, so there's this bright cloud coming over them. And is Jesus up there and the cloud comes and shadows them, we're not quite sure. You know, a a bright cloud, not a dark cloud, a brilliant cloud comes and it overshadows them, but it, but itself is light. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, when the disciples heard, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. So Jesus had been apart, high and exalted, coming in glory. And now he comes to them under the cloud and he says, do not be afraid, get up. Lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. You notice how many times he says this. Remember how many times Jesus has said things that people don't believe. And you're no different and I'm no different. Jesus says things over and over and over again and they're caught by surprise. And so will we be unless we take his word seriously. His disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered them and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Again, so also as John the Baptist died, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. That theme becomes the prominent theme of this last journey to Jerusalem. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, this is your word and it is about your Son and we ask that you will speak through my lips and through our hearts and our ears by your Spirit so that we gain understanding. We ask that the word may not come as word alone, but that it may come with power by the Spirit, with conviction, Father, and that it will work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Looking at this passage on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ... I have four points that I would like to make this morning. First, a great privilege. Second, a great promise and a great hope. Third, a great mistake. And then fourth, four great challenges, all right? A great privilege, a great promise, and great hope. A great mistake, and four great challenges. There are in Scripture appearances of God to men which are known by a technical theological term, which is theophany. Theo for God, phony is to appear, the appearance of God. When God appears to man, it's a theophany. God appears to man in Scripture in a variety of ways. Um, you, You know that at times he comes in the form of a man, and it's maybe not recognized as God initially. A great example of this is Jacob. When he's on his way back from being, having married and having established himself and he's going back to his promised land and he's afraid in the night and a man comes and wrestles with him and he wrestles through the night and as the night ends, he realizes that he's been wrestling with God. When God touches his hip and says, all right, I'm done wrestling, bang. So he wrestled with the power of a man and it was kind of even until the end of the night and then God says, oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a man. And he reaches out and touches him on the hip and he's lame for the rest of his life. And he realizes, Jacob realizes, ah, oh, I am in the presence of God. Now God came in the, in the, in the, in the guise, I would say, in the figure of a man. That's one type of theophany very common in scripture. Abraham and Sarah are sitting there and three men come. And then it becomes clear they're angels and then it becomes clear that it's God. But it, it, initially it's, it's men. Um, God appears in a theophany in Scripture when he comes in a vision or a dream. So in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filled the temple. It's a vision. He sees God in a vision, in a dream. Daniel, many dreams in Scripture beyond Daniel and Isaiah of where God appears to man. Technically they may not be a theophany, it may be just a vision because God is appearing not in some visual form or some, some physical form, but really they are theophanies. Uh, there are the theophanies where God comes and appears not in the form of a man or in a vision, but as an angel. And and at times people aren't aware that this is the angel of the Lord. So there's a great example of it in the life of Samson when the angel of the Lord, we're told, appears to Samson's mother, whose name we're not told in Scripture, but he appears to her and says, this son of yours is going to be such and so, and this is how you're, to, uh, and she goes and tells her husband, whose name is Manoah, and they say, whoa, and we need to know more, and the angel of the Lord comes back, and they're not aware it's the angel of the Lord at first. But then at the end they offer a sacrifice and the angel goes up in the fire in the flames of the sacrifice and they say, we've seen the angel of the Lord. We're going to die. So it is the messenger of God, which is what? Angelos, the Greek word that we take as angel, means it's a messenger. It is an angelic being, something from heaven. All right, God appears as an angel. He appears as a man. He appears in dreams. And then there is... A very special and unusual and rare and, for the purpose of my list, final form of theophany. Which is when man sees something of God himself. Now those are rare. They are an incredible privilege. Exceptionally rare. People speculate why it is Moses and Elijah who appear here with Jesus. John Calvin has a number of paragraphs on how Moses is the law. Elijah was a prophet that perhaps they come to signal the end of the law and the prophets and the new covenant of Jesus Christ I'm not persuaded, I hope you're, (laughs) I don't care if you're persuaded by him or not, Uh, usually I am persuaded by him, but um, on this occasion, I'm not persuaded, because Moses is called in Deuteronomy the great prophet, and and God says to Moses, I'm going to send a prophet like you, so he is the law, he's also the prophets, if God is signaling the end of the law and the prophets, Moses would be sufficient, right, you know, or there are Dozens of prophets that God could have chosen to have come down. Who are as prominent as this Elijah. But there is something that links Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John. And that is, in the Old Testament, at Mount Sinai, after the Israelites have sinned, God says to Moses, I'm done. I won't destroy them. Moses pleads with him, don't destroy them. God says, I won't destroy them. All right. I've heard you, Moses. I'm not going to kill them all and start over with you. But I will not go with you. And Moses says, oh, how terrible. How awful. You can't do that, God. You must come with us. You must come with us. God says, all right, I'll go with you. I will because you have pled for your people, pleaded for your people. Then Moses says, God, to show me as a sign that you do this. I want to see you. Now Moses has been in the tabernacle with God, you know. He goes in the tabernacle. I'm being anachronistic there. He later goes in the tabernacle, but that's not the same as this. On this occasion, God says to Moses, no man can see my face and live. That's an eternal truth. Now it ends... For us, when we come into his presence one day. But as long as man's alive on earth, we cannot look on God as sinners and live. God says, look, I'm going to put you, I'm going to put you in a rock on a mountain, high on a mountain, high on Mount Sinai. I'll do this thing of which you've spoken, for you found favor in my sight, and I've known you by name. Moses said, I pray you show me my glory. So Moses cuts out the two stone tablets. He rises up early in the morning. He's up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. He takes the two tablets. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as Moses called upon the name of the Lord. Moses is saying, God, God, my Father, God, come down, God. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth, And to worship. Moses saw the glory of God, the direct, unvarnished, unmediated glory of God, not God himself. God walking on the mountain. I'm not saying on the mountain, God, Moses on the mountain, God processing before Moses, declaring his character. After many years, Elijah comes. The nation has fallen to a low point. They all worship the foreign god, the the false god, Baal. Elijah has a great confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and and he wins. And after winning, he hears that the wicked queen Jezebel has promised to kill him. And in depression and panic, over having expended so much energy and yet finding that he is not safe at the end, despite his victory, he runs away. So he comes to a cave and he spends the night there and the word of the Lord comes to him in the cave. God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I have I've done what you asked. I've been zealous for you. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he's complaining to God. God said to him, go, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord is not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, in his shirt, and he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave on the mountain of the Lord. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is the third such theophany in Scripture of the glory of the Lord appearing to men of God on a mountain. There may be others who are given a vision of God, Paul talks about having, having been taken. He says, I don't know whether it was in bodily form or not, but to the third heaven, the first being the clouds here, the second being the stars, the universe. He said, I was taken to a third heaven, and there I saw things of which I cannot speak. And really that's true of, of Elijah, that's true of Moses, and it's true of the disciples here. Jesus says, you can't talk about this until later. It is a, a remarkable, a signal privilege to be chosen to see God. In whatever way, in whatever form of theophany, but especially to see his glory. It is Peter, James, and John Not Andrew, Peter's brother. Not Thomas, the one who doubts. Not Philip, who later says to Jesus, show us the Father and we'll believe. And Jesus says, don't you know that I am the Father? No, not those men. Peter, the one who has said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. James and John, who know that Jesus is going to come in his glory. The sons of thunder. John, who Jesus loves. John, the last of the disciples to live, lives a long life and suffers many things. James, the first of the disciples to be martyred for Jesus. Those three, taken up. Jesus says, come with me up on the mountain. Theophany, seeing God. This is a great privilege. It is a great privilege to see God. There is a great promise and a great hope that I want you to know about. The great hope is the hope of seeing God. David writes, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I, pray, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch, I watch. Uh, you probably have a sense of the challenges at the end, at least one of the challenges. I prepare a sacrifice in the morning and I watch, I watch. How many of us are watching for the glory of God? It doesn't come as a surprise. Not one of these guys is surprised. You're not going to be surprised. You're going to be waiting and watching if you're going to see the glory. Do you approach church on Sunday morning expecting to see the glory of the Lord? Do you read your Bible just to get it done? Or do you expect to see the glory of the Lord? David writes, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The fullness of joy is found where? In the presence of God. David writes, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to what? To behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to live in the house of God all my life, and I want to behold the beauty of the Lord And to meditate in his temple. This is the hope of David. And the great promise that Jesus makes to those who love and obey him is the promise we see fulfilled for these three here. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will show myself to him. You are not seeing Jesus. You are not knowing Jesus, well, Jesus has said, it's because you're not finding him due to your sin. Your sin, your failure to obey him is keeping you from knowing him. And of course, there is that great promise in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The great, great gift to those who are pure in their desire for God, they will see God. This is what's going on here. And I want to speak to you of all the people over all the centuries who had a hope of seeing God and who were pure in heart and how God fulfills those hopes. I was reading early in the beginning chapters of Matthew this morning to myself and, and I was thinking about how there is in anticipation of Jesus among the poor, among the simple people that is in some respects shared by the wealthy, the strong, the powerful, the devious, the awful, but shared in abhorrence in that group, whereas in the simple and the pure in heart, it's a longing. It's abhorred and feared. It's longed for. Uh, Jesus runs with his parents. The baby Jesus is taken by Joseph who runs at the warning of an angel to to Egypt because Herod, that that wicked, awful, lying leader, has has said, I'm going to kill him. They know it so before the troops of Herod come to wipe out all the children in the region of, of Bethlehem, Moses, or, uh, Joseph warned in a dream at night, escapes and takes the baby to Egypt. We don't know how long they're in Egypt. But we know it's some time because Herod dies and his son assumes the Rome, the throne, a man named Archelaus. And so we, we read in the Bible that Joseph comes back, but he learns that Archelaus is, the, is the, the king now in Jerusalem, the son of the Herod, okay? And so he comes back, and he's frightened because he knows that the father wanted to kill his baby, right? God warns him in a dream and says, don't go back. Go up to Nazareth. You're going to raise this child in Nazareth. You know, 100 miles away, which is like a 1,000 today. Now, what does that signal? Well, what it signals is that Herod's son and the people of Jerusalem still remember this baby who was born. And he's still a threat to them, and they're still trying to kill him. Do you understand? It's, it's as obvious as, as can be that they know about Jesus. They know the prophecies, they know everything, and they want to kill him. It's abhorrent to them, because he's a threat to them. And yet, in Luke, we have this marvelous story about the simple shepherds. These poor people are out in the fields at night. The angel of the Lord comes, them. remember Luke starts his gospel by saying, You know I'm approaching this as a historian I, I went to the eyewitnesses and I talked to them and I wrote down their stories you know and that's how I'm telling you about these events of Jesus life because I went and I talked to the eyewitnesses remember that now I'm adding words but in essence that's what he says he says Theophilus I've talked to the people and so we get the story of the shepherds and of them being in the angels out in the fields at night with their flock and the angel of the Lord, and then the, the multitude of the heavenly host appearing before them, and then they say, let's go and see this thing that the Lord has made known to us, let's find this child, and they're told you'll find them wrapped in swaddling clothes, and lying in a manger, so they go to Bethlehem, and they look for the child, and they find the child, they find that baby, and they bow down and worship to that baby, okay, now all of these things are things that they may have told Mary or Joseph that night. Mary may have heard them, they may have heard about the angels, they may have heard of all that, right? And, and Mary could be the source of, of Luke's knowledge of these events. But then we read, and they returned to the hillsides to their sheep, glorifying and praising God for all the things that occurred, just as the angel had said unto them. Now that part, Mary didn't know. That part she was not an eyewitness to. Do you understand? She couldn't tell them that they returned glorifying and praising God the whole way. Whatever they told her about what they had seen, she could have told Luke. But there had to be some living memory by the time that Luke is writing among those shepherds or their descendants of that night that lived for decades For decades, those people said, I met that baby. I met that baby. I wonder what that baby's going to be. I was there. They tell their children, and their children tell their children, and they say, I met the Messiah. I met him. I may have been a baby. He may have been a baby. But I was there, and I worshipped. Anna and Simeon, those great old people who longed for the Messiah, God comes to them and says in their old age, hey, the day has come. Go into the temple. And there in the temple, they see God. It is a great promise. It is a great hope to see God. It is the hope of hopes that God will allow us to see him. It is the great thing. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. In the day of Christ's return, we will see fully. We will be known fully. We will look and see fully the face of God. A great mistake, a great privilege, a great promise and great hope, a great mistake, one that you are prone to make and so am I. So this transfiguration occurs and and Peter, James, and John are there. And they're seeing it. And they see Moses and Elijah. How they recognize them, I don't know. We're not told. But Peter, ever the one to speak. And as I've said before, God be praised for this man and his willingness to speak. It's those who speak who change the world, not those who sit in silence. Peter, kind of speaking and not knowing what to say, says, To Jesus Lord it's good for us to be here if ever there was an understatement that's it it's good for us to be here if you wish I will make three tabernacles here one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah now immediately he's speaking a voice comes a bright cloud overshadows the vision a voice comes out of the cloud and it booms like the voice of heaven and it says this is Is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? Listen to him. So he's babbling and he equates Jesus with Elijah and Moses and says, Let's do three tabernacles, which, as I said, are are forms of worship. And he includes Jesus with Elijah and Moses. And God the Father says, That's my son. Listen to him. Uh, my friends, I don't know if you've fallen into the trap of our day, and probably the trap of many days, but the trap that is so prominent of our day, of looking at Jesus as this sweet creature who is kind and nice and exists to make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> and I'm, I'm speaking rhetorically here, and I'm, you know, I'm slamming lots of things together. But let me say, God the Father... Does not want you in any doubt at all that Jesus the Christ is his son. And above everything and anything in existence, this is God. Jesus is God. And so now we come to the great challenges. The first is be quiet. Shut your mouth. Don't babble. Listen and learn. Don't be quick to speak. Allow God to speak. Come to enjoy silence. Do not fill your heart and your mind and your eyes and your ears with the voices of the world, least of all your own. Learn to be silent before God. Stop saying and listen. Peter starts speaking and he makes a great mistake. The friends of Job instead of sitting quietly with him, start speaking and they make a big mistake. Shut your mouth. You don't know as much as you think you do, nor do I. Come before the great God in silence. I hope I'm being clear. Stop the prattling. Life is serious. God is here in our midst. Second, And I don't know whether this one should be first or second. The order of them is kind of, could be either way. First, be quiet. Second, the voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. So stop saying what you think and what you want and start listening to Jesus and accepting what he wants. That's, of course, what it means when it says, listen to him. It's saying, listen to him. Obey him. Do you remember what Jesus said as a prerequisite for seeing him one day? What did he say? He said... He who has my commandments and keeps them listens to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will show myself to him. Listen to Jesus. If your life is dark, if there is a lack of joy, if you are finding that your voice is very loud in your life and the voice of God is very quiet, then stop talking and start doing. Obey Jesus, obey him. Jesus never ever eases up on the pedal of obedience throughout his life. Now, pastors, I in practice, all of us will ease up on obedience. Ah, Jesus says, don't ease up on that pedal obey Him. The more you obey Him and listen to His voice, the more glory, the more happiness, the more of His presence. So, be quiet, listen to Jesus. Third, this is important, seek as leaders in your life, spiritual leaders, not those who speak eloquently, not those who are facile, Not those who are cool, not those who are good-looking, not those who've written books and are popular. Seek a man who has been in the presence of God. Value knowledge of God above every earthly attainment. Seek leaders who know God. Don't seek those who want to be heard and like to speak. Seek those who are willing to be silent at times because they're seeking God. The voice that is always heard is never the voice that should be followed. Seek leaders. Choose as your pastors, your elders, men who have tasted the glory of God. Finally, and I close with this, um, be quiet, listen to Jesus. Make sure you choose leaders that have been in God's presence. Finally, look to his coming. Look to his coming. Now, my grandmother died in her 70s and in her last days she had this hope. I think it was a lifelong hope but it was expressed more in her last days that she'd be alive at Christ's second coming. I've always associated that kind of a wish with old age and and feebleness as a result. You know, my grandmother always said, oh, I want to be there when Jesus, I looked at her and I thought, you know. And I still kind of, when I hear people say, oh, I want to be there when Jesus comes, I have to fight that Temptation. I have to fight it. But imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and you've known him and followed him and you've lived your life for him. And he comes to vindicate you, which is what he's coming to do, to say, This is my child. I love him. Imagine all the conflicts in your life that have appeared like losses. All the pains will be wiped out by the presence of Jesus. You, you will have his hand on your shoulder. He'll say, I love this one. So instead of thinking of an old woman in her declining years saying, I wish I could live to see Jesus, I've started to think of this as a picture that I saw. Most of you, many of you are familiar with it. Won a Pulitzer Prize. It was a picture taken at the very last days of, really at the end of the Vietnam War. And it was of the prisoners of war who had spent years in the Hanoi Hilton being, I mean, really tortured, return home. The Vietnamese walked them across the, I think it was the bridge to the Americans. The Americans took the POWs. Many of you weren't alive, so I'll tell you the story. Took them and put them in. a a base somewhere, I don't remember where, where they were treated medically, where they were given food. They didn't want to throw them right back into society. They said we have to we have to make some kind of a bridge for them. And then, I don't know how long it was, a month, two months that they were on the base. They brought them back to an air base and there's this kind of incredible picture of, that was taken by a photographer behind one of these returning POWs. You don't see his face, as I recall. You just see him as a presence, his back. And running towards him is this young girl. How many of you know the picture I'm talking about? Yeah, a few of you. Running, So you see the girl running, and she's running... Tell Mel, no. she's obviously old enough to have known her dad, even if the war, if, even if he'd been in there eight or nine years. She's just into her early teen years, old enough to have known her dad. And he's come home, and she is running. This is what the Christian will do towards the Son of God when he returns, our Savior. You know, in Habakkuk, I want to close. Habakkuk, the prophet writes a series of very strong condemnations of the nations for their sin. And in the midst of these condemnations and these warnings to the nations, there's a verse, which you know. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. All right? It's saying to these nations, hey, you wicked people, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. There is coming a day when the glory of Christ will not just be visible to those who are running to Him as their father, as their friend, as their Savior, but the whole world is going to see the glory of the magnificence of Jesus Christ. It'll be filled the earth as the waters fill the sea. And on that day, if you don't know Him, it will be the terror. The existential terror of your entire life to see Jesus. That's the warning. It's a warning Habakkuk. He's coming back and you'll see him. We're all going to see the glory of Jesus. Every one of us. Every single human being ever born will see the glory of Christ. But will we have worshipped it before he comes? Do you worship Jesus? Do you obey him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this great passage, these great men, this great privilege, and this great challenge, and I pray, Father, that we'll take this challenge and live by it. Change our lives, Father, give us obedience, hearts that hear, that are soft, Father, eyes that see, give us ears, Father, may we listen to Jesus, and may we welcome his coming one day. In Jesus' name, amen.